Hello and welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. I'm your host for today, Sam Boyassi, here at EMG Health. And today I'm joined by Isma Benaccia, Vice President of Europe for Medical Affairs at Amgen. Isma, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thank you. Hello, everyone. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. And um, I'm doing very well, actually. Good to hear. Um, As always, I want to give our listeners a bit of background about you before I dive into my questions, which I can't wait to get stuck into. But just for a bit of background, if you don't know about Isma. So Isma began her professional life as a medical practitioner, working as a psychiatrist for a few years in a hospital in Paris, and then joining Eli Lilly as a medical advisor for their neuroscience team. Her subsequent pharmaceutical career has taken her to Pfizer-Wyeth, Sanofi Genzyme, and finally to where she resides now at Amgen, where she joined in 2013 as the Vice President of Global Patient Safety and Labelling. She became the European Vice President of Medical Affairs in 2018 and is a hands-on leader who is passionate about inspiring her teams, challenging the status quo, diversity in workplace, and lifting up fellow women in pharma to succeed, which... I just love to hear and see, so can't wait. But but to begin with, Isma, I, I wanted to discuss your time in Paris working as a psychiatrist. What what, what motivated you to pursue that job? Well, uh, to be honest with you, at the beginning, you know, I I, I went to psychiatry as a an intellect interest, and I was okay. I'm going to spend a year, and then probably you know shift really gears. And at that time, I was very attracted and interested in practicing and uh, in, in more in surgery, which is absolutely at the opposite of psychiatry. <laughs> and I have to say it was one of the most uh, eye-opening, rewarding uh, decisions that I, I've made in my life. Um, because when you approaching psychiatry, very often in our society, we separate the mind and the body, and we focus a lot on the body, ignoring the mind. So with psychiatry, I, you know, I've seen among the most devastating diseases, uh, chronic diseases, but uh, also what really got my attention very, very early and very quickly, it's again, it's a medical specialty. Therefore, these patients, patients with psychiatry, especially in public hospital, they have barely access to the overall healthcare. By this, I mean, you know, they also suffer from hypertension, diabetes, infection, you name it, mm. on top of the mental illness. And they realize that's probably the specialty, the most complete one, when you can exercise both your knowledge or the, the science and the art of, of medicine for the body and the mind. So uh, it, it's an absolutely... Um, under-recognized um, and under-evaluated mm-hmm. uh, specialty in a sense as a medical specialty very often when people think psychiatry, they only think about the mind, but you cannot separate one from the other. That's such an interesting way of looking at it and certainly not a way that I've looked at it before, um, but, but really, really fascinating. And so that experience then must have also taught you some things about adherence, um, which we know is a key decider of health outcomes for patients. So so what, what did that teach you about patient motivations to adhere to treatments? 
I think overall, uh, you know, treatment adherence or uh, compliance, as we refer to it, uh, compliant with, with your treatment is uh, for chronic disease is a really uh, a huge challenge, independently of the specialty and independently of the disease, mm. uh, especially asymptomatic diseases where you don't have signs and symptoms to remind you constantly on the importance of taking your treatment. So in you add to this in psychiatry when if you think about uh, mental illness, um, the onset of the illness comes very early in very young adult life. And there's always this hope and any patient with a chronic disease is they feel well long enough, maybe they are cured. So and they will stop the therapy. Uh, and, and that's unfortunately very often is associated with relapse. And uh, and depending on the, of course, of the disease, the relapse is associated with huge consequences of comorbidity, additional comorbidities. Uh, sometimes it's a worsening of the condition. So uh, treatment adherence is still a big challenge. Um, there are different um, strategies to uh, uh, encourage patients to adhere to their treatment. And I think that we have a unique opportunity with the new technologies probably to be a little bit more engaged. The physicians need to be a little bit more engaged in ensuring that the treatment continuity is a must. And I have to say, I'm extremely worried about the current situation, the pandemic situation, where many of the patients with chronic diseases are hesitant or, ca or cannot have access to um, healthcare, and therefore they are discontinu discontinuating their treatment. Mm. And we know the consequences of that, unfortunately, and as I said, on terms of morbidity and uh, mortality as well. Mm. It's so true. We, we recently did a bit of research where we talked to some of our um, healthcare professional audiences who are practitioners. And one of the things that we really, really recognize off the back of those conversations is that the biggest challenge that those people face at the moment is just getting patients to not be, I guess it's a bit different now, but back when, when COVID was slowly going down again, it's kind of reassuring patients that it's to a certain extent still encouraged for them to come in um, and see them face to face and, and, and get their prescriptions and really stick to and adhere to their treatment plan. Um, so yeah, I can see why that has certainly been a bit of a challenge um, this year uh, and certainly something that we need a solution to. Um, and then when you made your transition over to the pharmaceutical industry and, and more specifically your role right now as a medical affairs leader, mm -hmm. you are focused on identifying intersections between medicine and technology. How can these be best discovered and, and what potential can they unlock for patients in particular? I would say the potential, let me start by the end of your question. The potential is tremendous. Mm. The potential is tremendous in a sense. It's a fantastic opportunity to really have the patient totally engage in their uh, treatment or uh, treatment plan. So what the technologies are allowing us is an easier access to the patients and for the patients an easier access to the healthcare provider. We've seen, again, significant progress during this crisis of telehealth and telemedicine, mm -hmm. and I'm separating between telehealth and telemedicine, uh, to the benefit of the patient. However, however, it's not the ultimate solution because many of the patients, especially elderly patients 
who are not tax savvy or are not comfortable or in certain some specialties, telemedicine is not the solution. But uh, beyond that, there is an aspect of keeping the contact and communicating with the patient. So having, again, trusted sources of information that the patient can go to to learn about um, their disease, learn about their uh, treatment, uh, the uh, side effects and the risks of their treatment, especially during this pandemic situation, is absolutely critical. So I, I, I try to have a better understanding where patients go to find this information. And mm-hmm. I have to say social media are yeah. playing a, a very important role with all the pros and cons. And I have to say many of the cons that, again, uh, the false information being circulated. So we need to make more effort in uh, ensuring that patients have access to trusted sources of information to ensure, again, uh, the uh, treatment continuity. But the opportunities are tremendous. Mm. There's a lot we can learn uh, from other industry. As a pharma industry, how we can leverage these new technologies, and uh, and doing it in the right way. It's a you know by by this I mean in a regulated and controlled environment, and build this um, bridge of trust between the industry, healthcare providers, and patients. Absolutely. And another thing, I can't remember where it is that I saw it, but very recently I read a kind of new study release where it basically did show that trust within the industry from the public has actually increased in a positive way this year, um, which is really, really encouraging to to hear. So that combined with what, what you just said is very optimistic and promising. And, and kind of on this topic then, Isma, COVID has had a drastic impact on the pharma industry's ability to communicate with healthcare professionals. Can you perhaps talk us through the key learnings from Amgen's post-COVID healthcare provider preferences when it comes to MSL interactions in particular? Sure. And I'll start by saying uh, we cannot truly talk about post-COVID yet because we're still going through the second wave of, uh, at least here in Europe, the second wave of, of, of this pandemic, and we're still learning. Yeah. So what COVID had uh, the impact on our industry, and I'm going to talk about the industry and then specifically share with you some of the learnings we have at, at Amgen, but it has impacted the overall uh, uh, pharma industry, but also not only the industry, but the overall healthcare ecosystem. Because it's as deep and challenging for uh, the healthcare system, and it's really redefining the hospital as we know it today. We it's redefining the uh, patient care. We talked about telehealth and telemedicine. Uh, it's redefining also access to information and scientific information uh, for healthcare providers. So um, it's a deep transformation that is ongoing today. So what have we learned from the first wave? So we've been all, um, you know, uh, no different from any other uh, industry or any other uh, pharma company. You know, we had to go through the first shock and then the reaction and adaptation. So I have to say, and I have to applaud my colleagues, this is not something, you know, I've done or it's really... Uh, the common effort of with my colleagues, it's really how quickly 
we realized that on top of the patient needs and ensuring treatment continuity, unfortunately, on treatment uh, or, you know, on the initial diagnosis or treatment initiation, there was very little we could do as, as an industry. So we worked with the different uh, scientific societies. We worked also with the different health authorities to ensure treatment continuity for the patient. For example, in Italy, making sure that patient will have access to their treatment when the lockdown was at the in place uh, with the first wave. And we realized also working with, with non-profit uh, associations or groups that were we ensuring, again, treatment was delivered to the patient. Many of these patients were elderly patients had difficulties even to get food. So really how we can embark from a social contract in ensuring this continuity in, for the patient was really critical to us. But what we've learned also very quickly, not only the patients were isolated, physicians, if you're not caring for a COVID patients, you were also locked at home. Mm. And there was a need to you know, reach out to their colleagues and create a forum and community where, again, a sense of continue to learn and uh, scientific information data, being worried for their patients suffering from other diseases, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis. I can go on and on, or oncology patients as well. Mm -hmm. So then very quickly, we reverted to a digital world. So literally from, let's call it 80 to 90% of our interaction, especially if you're talking about MSLs, we're face-to-face, we uh, ended up at the first wave at the beginning, almost no interaction, almost equal to zero, to we, in a matter of few weeks, we reverted back to virtual interaction. And what I have, if I have to look at absolute number, the number of interaction on the digital platform is much higher than what we had when a face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And what was attracting to physicians? New information, scientific data, information data on COVID and other therapies, COVID in oncology, multiple myeloma patient, lymphoma patient, patient with osteoporosis. And really, it's forced us also to quickly start thinking in generating data to address these important clinical questions. So we invested also some our funding and research funding in generating data related to COVID to address clinical questions and to ensure patient care. Wow. Thank you for summarizing those key learnings. As as you were kind of talking, I was also reflecting at the same time about how much of a challenging time it is for the pharmaceutical industry with everything that's going on in the world right now. But also, I just have to say, I I really applaud you and your colleagues and and the industry overall for the incredible work that you've been able to do while going through these transformations. Um, It truly is inspiring. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. I'm I'm really proud. And I have to say, uh, it's really a privilege to work uh, in this industry. Uh, Mm. Truly, it's truly a privilege. And especially when you see uh, some of the decision actions you're taking, I'm making a difference in people's life and patients' lives. Absolutely. I I kind of want to shift the conversation a little bit and talk about something that I mentioned very briefly in your introduction about something that you're very passionate about, uh, and that is diversity and representation. What what more needs to be done in the pharma industry to ensure that there are equal opportunities for both men and women when it comes to representation and breaking into those C-suite roles? 
Um, a lot has been done, but still a lot to be done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I, 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 you know, I, I would like to talk about diversity with a big D. Mm. By this, I mean really people who think different, look different, ex- had different experiences, different background. The cognitive diversity is the biggest asset for a company. Mm. So, um, a lot has been done and uh, in, in making the effort, but when I, when you look at the metrics and the data across all industries, but especially in, in, in and also in our industry, we see a, a, a slowing down of a progression of a woman coming to a certain level. And that's really the shift or the the to the more uh, senior executive levels. And I, I think it has to do also about the transition. Mm-hmm. We are going through a transition, generational transition in our industry. We have to accept also, uh, we like it or not, there are inherent biases in everything mm-hmm. we do, all of us, independently of your background, your gender or your diversity. So uh, so being conscious of this um these unconscious biases is really important. And then we've seen a big movement today in um, embracing, again, this gap in our thinking and being aware. It helps a lot in um, ensuring that uh, when considering the pool of talent, women, mm-hmm. women with a diverse background, it's even more challenging for women with a diverse background, are considered for the more strategic and critical roles in an organization. Mm. So uh, how it's going to happen, and I'm very optimistic it will happen, we have to broaden also the pool of talents. It's not, you know, it, 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 and one of the sources, the challenges, the pool of talent is not, has not been broadened enough in the past to allow, again, for these talents to raise over the years to the more uh, senior and executive roles. So, um, so again, being visible, being uh, vocal, um, reminding organizations sometimes on the inherent biases mm-hmm. uh, are, are really absolutely critical in, con- in order to continue to progress um, in, in, in ensuring that we have a, an organization that is reflective of the society we live in. Because yeah. you have to think about it. Companies are a, a small sample size, uh, should be a small sample size of the society we live in. And our societies are very diverse. So we want to make sure that um, it's reflected. And we talk a lot also about equal opportunities. And we're seeing all the movement going on today in the U.S. and outside the U.S. And it will help raising, again, um, the awareness and hopefully reducing the, uh, the biases in organizations. Absolutely. So true. Brilliantly summarized and articulated. And I agree with everything that you just said there. And, and, and it ties in nicely with actually what my last question for you is, Isma. Mm-hmm. Um, re- reflecting on your career so far, is there a standout female mentor or role model who, who really inspired you to become the woman and the leader that you are today? To be honest with you, when reflecting on this question, uh, I cannot think about, uh, you know, one 
name, one figure in front of me and saying, oh, this is, it's really, it's an accumulation of different styles of leadership mm-hmm. um, that I've seen through my life. And, and I consider myself a citizen of the world. I lived in different continent. I have studied in different countries <laughs> mm. so and i've seen women at all levels and uh grandmothers through their courage their determination they uh, are really a role model and then i still admire them to uh more uh recent uh, examples as women in uh top leadership role i i cannot help about thinking about the new zealand Prime Minister, yes. I cannot help and think about Angela Merkel. I cannot mm. help and think of many other women, African women, who are an amazing example of resilience, of commitment to advance and changing the world around them. So um, I cannot think about one uh, model. Mm. I think about leadership is a journey, however, and uh, a, a journey where uh, you continuously um, improve it. It's not one style that you be carrying over time or over the years because you are changing, you know, yeah. over time yourself. So, uh, and why you do you need to limit yourself? My advice is look around you, open your eyes, be curious and look at the different models. Men or women mm-hmm. uh, of, of leadership and and we have wonderful examples currently going on around the world, uh, you know, uh, uh, that we can be inspired from. And most importantly, take what is good for you and build it into who you are and who you are going to be in the future leader. Absolutely. You're so right. It's such a wonderful time to be alive. And there are so many inspiring models around us who we can really learn from and, um, yeah, I guess get advice from, of which you are certainly one. Um, so <laughs> thank you very much. That was a very inspiring and and, and thoughtful answer. Um, but Isma, I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. And uh, thank you again for having me. Of course, of course. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening. And please do tune in again next week to hear from another great guest on the EMG Gold podcast. Thank you and take care.